When it comes to Paul and James, we often believe they are at odds with each other. In one corner is Paul, who stresses salvation by faith and says that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And in the other corner is James, who says, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. So which is it? Are the works a part of our salvation or not? Martin Luther was so frustrated trying to figure this out and reconcile the two men that he thought it was best just to delete the letter of James from the New Testament. However, I think Luther got it dead wrong. I believe the two men are very compatible. The bottom line, James and Paul are on the same page, so much so that I argue that James is even borrowing Pauline concepts as he writes his letter. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Father Dustin, your host. As you know, we've been going through the letter of James, and we're now ready for the second half of chapter three. I think what I'll do today is something just a little bit different. First, I think I'll read through the last half of chapter three, and then we'll talk about it in the greater context of James. And as you see, it's just reinforcing what has already been said by James. But then I want to go back to a question I posed in the very first episode of our series on James. And that was, is James a part of the Pauline school, or is it something different? Now, you know that Martin Luther did not like James. He thought James and St. Paul were saying something completely different. And Martin Luther's solution was to get rid of the book of James. However, One of my professors, Father Paul Tarazzi, has argued that the entire New Testament is a part of the Pauline school. In other words, St. Paul and his disciples were responsible for the entirety of the New Testament as we know it. So none of this church produces scripture, that sort of thing. But rather, it's Paul and his school that puts scripture together for their communities. And James is included to show that he agrees with Paul. As we know historically, the church in Jerusalem, headed by James, butted heads with Paul. And this is the famous incident in Antioch, and you can read about that in Galatians. To get past that historical moment and to show that James is finally on board with the Pauline school, this letter from James is included in the New Testament by the Pauline school. And one of the big differences, or at least the differences that there seems to be between the two, is these works of the law. We know that Paul says you do not need to have works of the law in order to be saved. And it seems like James is saying, yes, you do, because faith without works is dead. But you have to remember that what Paul means by works of the law is not moral works, and not everything that happens, but rather specifically these outward observances, such as circumcision. And we've come to see, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, that James agrees 
When he says faith without works is dead, he's not talking about works such as circumcision or keeping kosher or Sabbath, but rather moral works, specifically caring for the poor and having mercy on those who need it. So we see that Paul and James are actually on the same page. So with all due respect to Martin Luther, Luther was just wrong. He didn't understand Paul and just got it wrong. And we also know from modern scholarship, this is the new perspective on Paul, headed by N.T. Wright, is actually shouldn't be called the new perspective. It should be called something like the original perspective. And it's a reaction against Lutheranism specifically. And the scholarship of these new perspective folks is to show what Paul actually means by works of the law. And you can even go back and listen to one of the interviews I did with Matthew Thomas, who shows that even the second century church fathers understand works of the law in the same way that N.T. Wright and the New Perspective understands it. I think chapter 3 is important for us here because the vocabulary used in it looks very Pauline to me. And after I read through it and talk about it generally, I want to go back and look at that vocabulary specifically and show how it connects back to the works of St. Paul, which would make the argument stronger that perhaps James is a product of the Pauline school to show that there was a resolution between Paul and James. Starting with verse 13, here we go. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace for those who make peace. And that's the end of chapter 3. So in other words, James is arguing that if you are wise... Your faith is producing these good works. That's it in a nutshell. If you want to summarize this last half of chapter 3, that's it. That faith without works is actually wisdom. Not only that, but it's the wisdom that comes from God. And if you believe differently, either you're ignoring the poor person in church and paying attention to the rich person, as James previously talked about, or perhaps you're arguing that you can have faith without works, that is not wisdom from God. That's earthly. And if we go back to that example of the rich versus poor person in church and who you're paying attention to and who you're prioritizing, that would be a part of envy and selfish ambition. Because in the first century, we have to understand rich as greedy. This is how they understood it, and we've talked about that. And so if you are rich, it means that you've learned the ways of the world and you're able to exploit others for your own benefit. Now, you may be wise according to earthly standards, and you may be wise according to business standards, but you're not wise according to God's standards. And in order to accumulate wealth, often you have to be very prideful and egotistic 
You have to look out for yourself, and it often includes stepping on others on your way up to the top. And James is saying that's not what it means to live a Christian lifestyle. That's not what it means to follow Christ. That's not what it means to walk the way. That is not faith. And he goes on to say those works that go along with faith is peace and gentleness and mercy. This is the good fruits. And good fruits is seen all over scripture. This is, It means what is produced by actions. So even there in that phrase, we see that works is included with faith. Because if you're producing fruit, there's something to be seen. There's something that's being born out of that faith. So that's what James is talking about here at the end of chapter 3. And as I said, it's basically reinforcing what he said before. Now, why do I think, or why would I say that the vocabulary being used here comes from St. Paul? Well, let's begin with verse 13. So James says right away, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he goes on to talk about wisdom from above versus wisdom that's not from above. And where have we heard a discussion like that before? Hmm. Well, I hope all of my hearers are saying, that's in St. Paul, that's in St. Paul, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you would be absolutely correct to say that. So here, this is starting with verse 20 of chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Judeans demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Judeans and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Judeans and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And then skipping to verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. So what Paul is talking about is a difference between the wisdom that is from above and the wisdom that is from below. And if you are wise according to God, the things of the world will look foolish. But if you're wise according to the world, the things of God will look foolish. So, for example, God shows forth his love for the world through crucifixion. Christ is shown to be the anointed one, that's what the word Christ means, or the Messiah, through crucifixion. In other words, we see our king when he is crucified, not when he's sitting on a throne. We see our king when he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, not when he's riding a white stallion. So everything seems upside down. God's strength is shown through death. God's victory is shown through death. And this seems like foolishness according to the world. 
And even the way that we are called to live as Christians, according to St. Paul, according to the Gospels, seems foolish according to the ways of the world. God prioritizes the poor. God prioritizes the widow, the orphan, the least of these. And we are called to identify with them. We are called to identify with Christ by picking up our cross and following Him. The heroes of our faith are the martyrs. Martyr means witness. They are witnesses of God precisely because they died, just as we see God the Father through Christ in His crucifixion. All of this seems like foolishness, but this is actually, according to St. Paul and James, wisdom that comes from above. When we show mercy and identify with Christ, we are wise according to God. So this discussion here in 1 Corinthians about wise and foolish fits very nicely in James' discussion about wisdom and foolishness. According to James, you are wise when you love the poor, and you treat them well when they come to church. And you are foolish, according to James, if you treat the rich person nice and give them the best seat in the house. So everything is upside down, according to James, as well. But this upside-downness scripturally makes sense. This is God's wisdom, not human wisdom. As I said earlier, human wisdom goes against God. Human wisdom looks out for the self and tries to accumulate the most you can, riches for yourself, while not paying attention to the poor, while not loving your neighbor, and not caring for the least of these. And that actually isn't wise. That, according to James and St. Paul, is the wisdom of the world. But it's all foolish, according to God. We've got that word, the wisdom of God. Second and third vocabulary words go together in my mind, and this comes from verse 15 of chapter 3 here in James. And that says, Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. So the two words I want to key in on here are earthly and unspiritual. You may not think too much about these two words at first, but they appear close together also in the writings of St. Paul, also in 1 Corinthians. This is skipping ahead to chapter 15. And if you go back and you use the New Revised Standard Version, which is what I'm reading here, you will see the word earthly in chapter 15. But you may say, well, wait a minute. I don't see the word unspiritual in chapter 15. He's talking about other things. What's the connection? Well, this goes back to the Greek. So the word unspiritual in Greek is psychikos. And usually we translate that word as soul. But it can have other translations, such as natural. And usually the soul is contrasted with the spirit. And what it means here is an animating breath, if you want to think of it this way. And on one hand, you're talking about what's unspiritual or natural, that is, the breath that passes away, versus the Holy Spirit, that which animates us for eternal life. So it's talking about what gives us life. There's the life of the world, the fallenness, which ends in death, and there's the life that comes from God. 
we see how that plays out here in 1 Corinthians. It becomes a little more clear. So let's start with chapter 15, verse 40. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So there's our word earthly. But the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. Now I'm going to skip to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, and there's that word unspiritual or natural. Here they're translating it as physical. It is sown as a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. So here the word for natural body that Paul is talking about is psychikos. So it's that same word. So it's a body that's animated by the fallenness of humanity. It's a body that's animated with a breath that passes away. This is like Abel. Abel means breath. And we know that Abel is killed by Cain. He passes away. And this is in contrast to the spiritual body. And spiritual here is pneumatikos. For those who know uh, Greek, this is the same word used for like Holy Spirit. And this spirit is an animating force that comes from God. And so what Paul is contrasting is those people who are animated by the earthly versus those who are animated by the divine. And he's contrasting these two sorts of bodies and what animates them. And this is similar to what James is saying, that there is this earthly and then there's this spiritual and my point is that James here seems to be drawing on or using Pauline vocabulary or Pauline ideas when he says, such wisdom does not come down from above, this is worldly wisdom, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. So the last set of words I want to look at has to do with fruit and righteousness. I've already talked about good fruit, but just as a reminder, here is verse 17 and 18 again. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without trace or partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Again, in English, we have a problem. Fruits only appears once, but in Greek it appears twice. So if I were to translate this more directly, it would be, full of mercy and good fruits, without trace or partiality or hypocrisy, and fruits of righteousness, rather than harvest. And you can see the connection there. Of course, a harvest is the fruit. And so I understand why they would use harvest here in English. But the Greek actually says, uses the word karpos, fruits, the fruit of righteousness. We find this phrase in one other place in the New Testament. And again, it's in one of the Pauline letters. Though this time we're not going to Corinthians, we're going to the first chapter of Philippians. And this is Philippians 1, verse 10. To help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, 
having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. And again, harvest here is the word karpon, which is fruit. So literally the fruit of righteousness. So we have both James and Paul using this phrase, which lends to the argument that perhaps James is a part of the Pauline school and therefore using the ideas and vocabulary that comes from St. Paul. Of course, righteousness is also a very Pauline term. Righteousness can also be translated as justification or justified or put right. Uh, You can use all those sorts of things. And it means, it's a legal term that means to be in the right or to be right with God or to be made right with God. But here it's being used with fruit or harvest, depending on how you translate that. And it's this idea that way that you are walking shows that you are right with God. If you want to extend the legal terminology, perhaps you could say you are found guiltless or not guilty. And your walk with God, your faith with works, is the evidence that shows that you're right with God. And also, just to mention before we leave, is the idea of sowing. You know, a harvest or the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. We can think of the parable of the sower which is found in the Synoptic Gospels, and this idea that you are preaching the gospel, sowing the seed. And here it's being sown in peace, but it's the idea that what you do produces fruit in the world, uh, fruit that multiplies. Of course, it's God who provides the multiplication, the life for the seeds. But that idea, again, if the entire New Testament is a Pauline school, this is another Pauline idea. So we'll end there, and next week we'll pick up with chapter 4. But I wanted to show how perhaps James is not so different from St. Paul, not as different as we think. And I know we've talked about good works, but I wanted to show that some of these other Pauline ideas appear in James, perhaps in passing, but they appear enough that I think there might be a strong argument that perhaps James is in the Pauline school and not so different from what Paul is saying. And so we should take James seriously. So I pray that uh, this week you have wisdom from above and that the fruit of righteousness is sown.